Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. In this episode, guest host Allison Nobles talks to Tulane professor Mimi Shippers about her book Beyond Monogamy, Polyamory and the Future of Polyqueer Sexualities. The book interrogates compulsory monogamy, or our cultural disposition towards being in a relationship with only one other person at a time. Shippers argues that this compulsory disposition towards monogamy limits the ways that we can view relationships and reproduces various kinds of inequalities. Mimi, thank you so much for being here today at Office Hours. Thanks for having me. Sure. First, can you just briefly talk about why you chose monogamy or maybe non-monogamy rather as the focus of your book? Sure. There, there's a, there are a couple of reasons. Um, the first uh, is has to do with um, you know what's going on in queer theory and feminist theory. Uh, feminist theorists have been talking about monogamy and non-monogamy for a long time. And queer theorists also talk about monogamy, but it's usually among the list of characteristics that um, are presented uh, to talk about heteronormativity. And I noticed in the literature that uh, monogamy was often listed as a feature of heteronormativity, but I didn't see anybody really unpacking the role monogamy and compulsory monogamy play in um, perpetuating not just sexual inequalities, but other kinds of inequality, inequality along the lines of gender, along the lines of race, along the lines of class. And so I, I thought it was, um, uh, it, it was a gap in the literature. And so I thought, I should start exploring this and start thinking about the role that monogamy and mononormativity play. Um, and I think one of the reasons that uh, it was particularly interesting to me was because I have been practicing consensual non-monogamy for most of my life and I am polyamorous. And so um you know, all of our work that we do is somehow related to our lives. Uh, and in, in that way, it made sense to me to start thinking about uh, not only my own life, but the ways in which um, we form relationships might be contributing to different kinds of social inequality. Yeah, that's great. Um, I'm going to jump on one thing you said. You mentioned race. Uh, uh-huh. So one of the things... I'm wondering about is your claim that the monogamous couple is really central to white hetero masculinity. So can yeah. you explain that relationship and how race is related to monogamy? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So let me just clarify first. Um, I am not suggesting that monogamous couples reproduce race inequality, mm-hmm. although I think monogamous couples can mm-hmm. reproduce race inequality. I'm talking about the social construction of the ideal monogamous couple. 
And if we look historically, well, first of all, um, you know, as uh, Siobhan Somerville suggests, um, racial purity was as much a part of the emergence of sexuality as a system of social inequality. Racial purity was as central as maintaining white racial purity was as central as maintaining heterosexuality as the norm. And uh, so from the get-go, there was not just the social construction of heterosexuality as normal, there's also a social construction of racial purity through monogamous coupling uh, that emerges at the same time. So in addition to that, if we look historically, there has been sort of the deployment of the monogamous couple as a story or a narrative or a rationale for the normalcy and morality of white middle-class family structures and um, the sort of white supremacist construction of African-American families as pathological. And part of that story, um, you know, lots of people have been talking about this, but part, you know, the different ways in which this is done, but part of this story is uh, the construction of African-American kinship as non-monogamous. So multiple fathers for um, uh, a woman to have children of multiple fathers or for men to have children with multiple women. And interestingly, the um, during Jim Crow, uh, one of the narratives that was told by white supremacists um, about African-American families was that African-American men were particularly acquiescent to their wives' infidelities. And mm -hmm. so it's this sort of, this narrative about monogamy, right? Monogamy is normal. Mm -hmm. And African-American families as abnormal relied on the idea that uh, African-American women were incapable of monogamy and that African-American men were emasculated by their wives' infidelities. So, it, and we see this in contemporary um, constructions of the Muslim other. Uh, Jasper Pouar talks about this, that uh, polygamy uh, as part of uh, the construction of the Muslim other uh, makes uh, Muslim men seem more brutal, more sexist, more male dominant than Western Christian men. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, a, it's a narrative about polygamy to other Muslim men. Uh, not just a narrative about religion. So, and, and those are just a few examples. Um, you know, I, I, in the book I write about uh, the social construction of the, you know, the caricature mm -hmm. of the young black man on the down low. And part of that narrative was, well, first of all, with the emergence of HIV mm -hmm. in the 80s, uh, gay white men were constructed as incapable of monogamy that mm -hmm. promiscuity was the problem. And that's not just a narrative about um, homosexuality, it's a narrative about monogamy. Mm -hmm. And so in sort of the efforts for um, countering that narrative, uh, gay white men 
told a narrative about how they were capable of monogamous and um, of monogamy. And at the same time, what emerges is this caricature of the black man, young black man on the down low. And again, the incapability of black men to be monogamous. And what's interesting during that time is um, the anxieties about HIV and the anxieties about promiscuity and the lack of monogamy or the supposed lack of monogamy in gay men's relationships gets displaced onto the bodies of young black men. And it's a racial narrative, it's a narrative about sexuality, but it's also centrally a narrative about promiscuity and an inability to be faithful or monogamous. Um, So um, compulsory monogamy, monogamy, the ideal monogamous couple is readily available for people in positions of power to um, uh, t- tell narratives about other groups, more subordinate groups, uh, or um, people who uh, are socially disadvantaged to legitimate that social disadvantage and um, the privilege held by the dominant group. Monogamy is mm-hmm. always there lurking in the shadows and readily available to be deployed. Mm -hmm. And feminists have been talking about this for a long time, you know, um, uh, male dominant social structures rely on, uh, you know, narratives about monogamy, about women who aren't uh, faithful to their partners or husbands mm-hmm. and and therefore deserving of all sorts of um, uh, social sanctions. And no one has really told the story about the role of monogamy in sort of the socio-historical um, uh, establishment and maintenance of white supremacy in the United States. So that's one of the things that I wanted to do with the book. Yeah, thank you. Those are really good examples to to illustrate your points. Thanks. Um, so now I want to talk about um, one particular form of a non-monogamous relationships that you focus on in your book, which is the woman man man configuration. Right. Um, so you can can you talk about why this form was so central, or why you chose to focus on that particular form? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, the the book definitely each of the chapters um, has a, as sort of the center um, either sexual interactions that include two straight identified or heterosexually identified men and a woman, or relationships that include two polyamorous relationships that include two straight identified men or a woman. Mm -hmm. And um, the reason that I did that was, well, there were a few reasons. The first is that um, one of the foundational texts in queer theory is Eve Sedgwick's book, Between Men. Mm -hmm. And in in that book, she develops a theoretical framework for thinking about homosocial desire between men. And I won't go into too much detail about it, but the the focus of that um, book is uh, the ways in which relationships between men, two men, are heterosexualized by uh, authors narrating competition over the same woman, the same feminine sexual objects. So triangulation is central to her theoretical framework. Mm-hmm. And, and so 
I, in the book, am taking that theoretical framework and suggesting that Sedgwick's presumptions about the role the woman would play are mononormative and that they assume that it's not possible for the two men to simultaneously be in relationship with the woman. So that's the first reason. Mm -hmm. the, second, the second reason is um, we have room in this culture, contemporary American culture, for the idea that a man could possess two women or a man could have sex with two women. So polygamy, male-dominant polygamy, is uh, intelligible. We see it all over the place. We know what it looks like. We don't see a lot of representations of polyandry, right, where mm -hmm. a woman has multiple husbands. And what I talk about in the book is the threesome imaginary we have this um, uh, pretty rich uh, cultural archive of the eroticization of a heterosexual man having a threesome with two hot bi babes, right? right. That, that having a threesome with two women is like the gold ring for heterosexual masculinity or the brass ring. <laughs> the gold ring would be marriage. <laughs> That wouldn't work out too well. But um, um, so so straight men are encouraged all the time to fantasize about and eroticize having threesomes with two women. But there isn't a huge cultural archive of readily available images and narratives about women having threesomes with two men. And in fact, when we think about um, women having group sex with multiple men, we either think she's victimized by it that it's a, a gangbang situation or a take turns on the girl situation, or it's uh, she's a slut, right? Mm -hmm. And and so there's no room for in the culture. Well, there hasn't been until recently room in the culture for women to imagine having multiple partners, either in a sexual interaction or in a um, relationship. So that was the second reason. And then um, the third reason was, you know, quite literally, there are an infinite number of ways or gender configurations and numbers for doing polyamory. And it would be beyond the scope of the book to like work through what each different kind of configuration might mean in terms of challenging male dominance and racial inequality. So given Sedgwick and given the cultural context in which I'm writing, I thought it would be, I could make my theoretical argument without getting into the, you know, the details of different kinds of relationship configurations by simply focusing on the straight men and a woman. I could I could really get at what was going on with heteromasculinity and its relationship to monogamy and mononormativity. Mm -hmm. And I and I just want to say that, you know, I I don't think that um, this configuration, two straight men and a woman, is by any stretch of the imagination the only way to queer race and gender, mm -hmm. nor is it probably even um, you know, the configuration that would be most likely to lead to undoing gender and race inequality. It was a, it was a decision on my part to simplify and make sure that the theoretical um, and political argument got made 
and and hope that other people start thinking about different configurations of building on um, what I did in the book. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I think something that goes along with that is your argument that in this configuration, women can be more of an active subject rather than just this object of desire. Mm-hmm. And for me, it seems like that doesn't just have to apply to multi-partner relationships, but definitely could apply to, you know, monogamous straight couples also. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I, I'm actually interested in what your thoughts are about <laughs> that. Because uh, the question, it seems to me, based on the way you phrase the question, that you're thinking about how this could take shape in a monogamous uh, heterosexual couple. Sure. I mean, I think there's a lot of uh, things that people can take from polyamory, uh, like um, how we communicate, um, like more individualistic things. Um, but I think being able to think about what it's like for to be a woman in a polyqueer reg- or relationship or formation um, can definitely kind of create new ways to imagine what it could be like to be a queer polyamorous person within a monogamous relationship and, I mean, to be a straight person also. I think that's a little bit harder maybe to get, like, into the straight imagining, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, yeah, I think I would agree with you completely that – there's a way in which um, polyamory subcultures are talking about um, women's sexuality, talking about jealousy, and talking about um, relationships outside of sort of the romantic dyad that uh, that I think really can be instructive for people who are committed to monogamy but are also committed to not reproducing racial or gender inequality. So, I mean, just the idea that um, uh, a woman's sexuality is her own and um, it, there's a fundamental challenging to the idea of masculine possessiveness that, mm-hmm. that, that a man should be jealous and should be possessive and should therefore in some ways be kind of controlling of um, his partner's sexuality. Polyamory and the idea of polyqueer sexualities really pushes against that. Mm -hmm. And so even if a couple is committed to monogamy, the, the idea that um, they each of they each are in control of their own desire and their own bodies, um, I think could really, really um, help to start thinking about not reproducing male dominance. Um, And I know, you know, I've blogged about polyamory and, um, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of people and a lot of, uh, folks who are committed to monogamy are in happily monogamous uh, say that the 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 the, um, the blogs and uh, the stuff that I've written have really 
uh, help them think about their relationships in new ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks. And and I, I just want to add that, um, you know, uh, I also get a lot of people feeling defensive and saying, mm-hmm. oh, you're being critical of my relationship because it's monogamous. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I hope that it doesn't come across that way because I'm not critical of monogamous relationships. I'm, I'm critical of mononormativity or compulsory monogamy where it's just assumed that people eventually, as a sign of adult maturity, will settle into a monogamous dyadic relationship. I am an advocate not of polyamory. I'm an advocate of um, people consciously choosing the ways in which they want to have relationships. And because monogamy is so compulsory, it's it's so the default, it, 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 it does a lot of work to mask the ways in which male dominance and racial inequality and um, uh, white supremacy get reproduced in this sort of like, oh, it's just the way you do things. You just have to do it this way. Mm-hmm. And if you sit back and you start thinking about it, I think it opens up uh, channels to start questioning other things. Yeah, definitely. Do you, as a person who, so you're studying where um, you're questioning monogamy, and it is such a big assumption. Can you talk about what it was like or what it is like to do research that questions monogamy since it is such a salient social institution? Yeah. Um, well, it, it's been interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there's the the personal life, how people respond when either I say I'm polyamorous or that I'm researching polyamory. I was, I was with some friends last week after crew de Vue, we're in carnival season here in new Orleans. And I was hanging out with some friends and someone from out of town was at the table. And one of my friends said, Oh, this is Mimi. She's the professor of polyamory. <laughs> and I just, you know, it, completely out of context Mm -hmm. and I have no idea how the person (laughs) interpreted it. Um, but, uh, yeah. So in my personal life, um, there's all sorts of consequences. Um, you know, uh, people who are in monogamous relationships, some people are kind of wary of, um, forming social bonds, friendships, with me and other polyamorous people because they're they're afraid of, um, well, mostly a lot of people are afraid their partner will get ideas. <laughs> and um, they're also afraid that I or other polyamorous people won't honor other people's commitments to monogamy, which is as far from the truth as um, I can imagine. Uh, but in terms of my professional life, I really haven't gotten a lot of pushback um until very recently i um i am petitioning to be promoted to full professor and there was a little row that i had with um i won't mention any names but i i i definitely got pushback Mm -hmm. 
There was one person who was involved in evaluating my case who was very much opposed to um, the lifestyle, the research, the way I wrote my book. And so I'm sure that it had something to do with the subject matter. Um, but otherwise, I, I've been fairly lucky. I didn't really write about this until I was promoted to associate and got tenure. And I know other people have not been lucky. Elizabeth Sheff mm -hmm. had a really rough time. She was um, very much a pathbreaker, especially in the United States. And she, you know, she suffered the brunt of people's prejudices in really awful ways. So I'm very grateful for her for sort of clearing the path. Um, so I, I feel pretty good about it, and, you know, until the incident very recently. Is that what you, is that what you were asking? Is that what yeah. you meant? Yeah, definitely. I was just curious. And then, you know, I mean, and then there, you know, anybody who does sociological research on sexuality is suspect. Mm -hmm. You know, sexuality is still pretty marginalized in the field. And um, there's a presumption that if you're interested in sexuality, you're you're some kind of pervert. <laughs> and sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's it's not like people who study crime are presumed to be criminals. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? In the same way. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that's changing. And I, hopefully I'm doing my part to sort of push sociology as a discipline to thinking um, about sexuality as, you know, like race, class, and gender, sort of a central part of social inequality. Sure. Do you have any advice for maybe junior scholars that are thinking about studying sexuality? Yeah. Um, yeah, a couple of things. Um, if you can articulate your project in relationship to broader sociological questions, so you're bringing sexuality to a conversation that's already been going on mm -hmm. and articulate it that way, that's a way to get in. Um, I also would really highly recommend, uh, you know, building your social networks, join the section, the ASA section on sexualities. It's a great resource for, um, you know, mentoring and uh, building networks and support. I mean, this past uh, fall when I had the experience with uh, my petition for promotion, it were it was members in the, of the sexuality section of the American Sociological Association that really sort of jumped in and gave me the resources and support that I needed to uh, push forward. So, yeah, join the section, um, you know, ask sociological questions and articulate your research to other areas. Mm hmm. Thank you. Sure. So going back to your book, um, I think I mentioned this, uh, the term polyqueer sexualities is part of the subtitle of your book. Mm -hmm. Can you just um, briefly tell us what you mean by that or define the term polyqueer sexuality? Sure. So um, polyqueer sex and sexual, polyqueer sexualities are either sexual interactions or 
intimate relationships that include more than two people and that in the interaction or in the way people are doing the relationship, um, something about male dominance or white heteromasculine privilege or racial inequality gets undone or challenged, that that gender and race relations have to be sort of reconfigured given how the interaction is going down or how the relationship is being lived. And so the poly part is, you know, more than two people. And then the queer part is um, the sort of undoing of social inequalities through the ways in which we relate to each other. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is there could be a poly relationship that does not queer those things. Absolutely. (laughs) Yes, yes, absolutely. You know, I mean, I mentioned earlier um, male dominant forms of polygamy. Mm -hmm. That's poly. Right. But it's not very queer Mm -hmm. as far as we know, although there's some kind of really interesting work um, emerging now on uh, polygamous relationships and, um, you know, that are explicitly male-dominant polygamy where the man has multiple wives but the women don't have multiple husbands. And within those relationships, there's kind of some interesting stuff going on with um, pushing against male dominance. Mm-hmm. Um but, it, you know, I see it in polyamorous relationships. You know, some of us refer to it as the um, one penis policy. So mm-hmm. poly relationships <laughs> where, the you know, there's a presumption that more women will be invited into the relationship. But uh, there's an intolerance by a man or the men in the relationship for inviting men into the relationship. And that's just a reproduction of, you know, male possessiveness and male control. And I would not call that polyqueer. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, So your book is about kind of looking to the future or what uh, polyqueer sexualities and relationships can kind of help us do or change. Um, I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the potential of polyqueer sex and relationships. Sure. Um, I think there, there are a lot of really interesting, um, you know, when we start thinking about multi-adult households, for instance, mm-hmm. um, you know, if we, all of the things that go down in um, monogamous uh, couple households or single parent, single households. If we think about multi-adult households, like if we think about domestic violence, Mm -hmm. you know, like if there are multiple adults in the household and accountability, you know, what what implications might it have Mm -hmm. to have not just two adults in the household, but to have multiple adults. What sort of implications are there for um, financial insecurity if there Mm -hmm. are multiple adults? Um, The division of labor. Mm -hmm. I think there's all sorts of, and, you know, because we haven't really been, sociologists have not been looking at relationship form as variable and including plural relationships, you know, except for some note, 
Elizabeth Chef's book, um, The Polyamorous Next Door, gets mm-hmm. into all of this, and I highly recommend it. But, um, uh, you know, there's this whole world with, I think, these interesting implications for the way we do families that sociologists are, for the most part, not paying attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's potential for research, resource consumption. You know, if you put multiple adults in a household rather than separate households, you know, you're, you're consuming fewer resources. Um, you know, Chef finds that um, children in polyamorous households get more attention. Their needs are met um, because there are multiple adults in the household. Um, And I mean, just fundamentally, the idea polyamory as a relationship form challenges the idea that humans are by nature competitive and possessive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's like, that's a fundamental backbone of capitalist ideology that, you know, dog eat dog world, you know, the Hobbesian, uh, we're all out to compete for each other to Mm -hmm. hoard as many resources as possible. And so the narrative is men especially evolved to be naturally possessive and competitive and people who are living, um, in polyamorous relationships show that that, just might not be the case. So, you know, I, and there's so much thinking to be done about this. Um, I, I really, I feel like my book, you know, I just see it as like just creaking open the door (laughs) just a little bit and hoping people see something on the other side and that more people start Mm -hmm. thinking about monogamy and polyamory and the implications for social inequality. Yeah, I love that analogy, creaking open the door. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess along that line, what's next for you in terms of projects? Well, right now I'm working on a book that will be published with Rutledge. And um, right now the tentative title is The Polyqueer Gaze. And it's G-A-Z-E, not (laughs) G-A-Y-S. On a podcast, you know, it might sound like the um, polyqueer gaze. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So what I'm working on in this book is thinking about developing a critical uh, lens through which to decode media, you know, in, in Stuart Hall's term, to decode it in a way to... Um, see the workings of monogamy in different kinds of texts and different kinds of media and identify how that is um, perpetuating or obscuring uh, different forms of inequality. So I'm looking at evolutionary psychological theories of monogamy. I'm looking at um, historical biographies, I'm looking at media treatments of the um, FLDS, the Fundamental Latter-day Saints, mm-hmm. um, and I'm looking at uh, films and television shows. And so I'm, I'm just thinking about how representations of monogamy feed into social inequalities, but I'm also really interested in the ways in which polyamory or polyness pops up 
but it doesn't, it's not named as such, or it doesn't mm. look like, I mean, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not like a show about polyamorists, but there's something really poly about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so hoping that people can start, you know, as sort of a, here's how you can approach media or any text to look for mononormativity and to look for polyqueerness. Oh, that sounds great. I hope so. <laughs> we'll see. And then my next empirical project is going to be uh, a combination of ethnography and uh, interviews to uh, research uh, interracial poly relationships in the context of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. That you know, New Orleans has a long history of um, interracial non-monogamies, mm-hmm. uh, and so. I've already sort of done the archival work on that and I'm interested in the way people are living in New Orleans now doing interracial poly or consensual Mm non-monogamy and how it's related to the history of New Orleans and how inequalities are reproduced and challenged in the lived everyday lives of people doing interracial polyamory. Really cool. Um, Okay. Well, uh, so I really enjoyed reading your book um, and, hearing you. more, and hearing more about your research. Um, thank you so much, Mimi, for stopping by office hours today. Thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. This week's episode of Office Hours featuring Mimi Shippers was produced by me, Matthew Aguilar-Champeau, as part of the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. You can find more written content about the sociology of sexuality at the societypages.org.